0: Good evening and uh, welcome to this debate on ethics of media after the Leveson Report. It's one of the events that celebrate the 10th anniversary of the LSE Department of Media and Communications. And my name is Nick Caldry. I'm a professor in the Department of Media and Communications and uh, I'm delighted to chair this debate at a time when questions concerning ethics of media and the appropriate structures for regulating media institutions, if any, remain very much a live public issue. Indeed, it's hardly an exaggeration to say that in the UK, we currently, at least until the setting up of the recognition panel proposed by the recent Royal Charter, we have something of a standoff between government and the press about the basis on which a new self-regulatory body for the press should operate. But tonight we want to start off from a broader question, which is what can philosophical perspectives on ethics, contribute to debates about the ethics of media and perhaps also the regulation or self-regulation of media. Our main speaker tonight is Baroness Honora O'Neill, who I think needs little introduction. She is Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at Cambridge University and without question one of Britain's leading moral philosophers and public philosophers. Unusually also, She is a philosopher who has given specific attention to the ethics of media. Notably, in the last of her BBC Reith lectures, delivered in 2002, A Question of Trust. She's the author of many books, including Towards Justice and Virtue, 1996, Bounds of Justice, 2000, and most recently, the second edition of Acting on Principle, an essay on Kantian ethics. She was an expert witness to the Leverson Inquiry. She's a crossbench member of the House of Lords, and she's currently chair of the UK's Equality and Human Rights Commission, but tonight she'll be speaking in an entirely personal capacity. Tonight we also have two other distinguished speakers to complete the panel. Professor George Brock is head of journalism at City University. He's a member of the executive board of the International Press Institute and chairs its British committee. He's also a board member of the World Editors Forum, and he's the author of Out of Print, a book just out last year from Kogan Prage. There's a leaflet there, I forgot to bring it with me. Gavin Miller QC is co-founder of Doughty Street Chambers and a specialist in media law. He's undertaken a number of high-profile defamation, privacy and reporting restriction cases, and he's active for most of the major UK media organisations. He's the co-author of Media Law and Human Rights from 2009. And I, looking around, I can also see in the audience a number of other leading commentators on questions of media ethics and media law. I should also mention that we're celebrating tonight the recent publication of the book *Ethics of Media*. You can see leaflets around you, published by Palgrave Macmillan, co-edited, no coincidence, by myself, Mirka Madianu, and Amit Pinchewski, And LSE is very grateful to Palgrave Macmillan for their generous support of this event. And Professor O'Neill, I would stress, has written the book's lead chapter, and you can buy copies outside. Now to the debate. Baroness O'Neill will speak first for between 20 and 30 minutes, followed by responses of up to around 15 minutes from Professor Brock and Gavin Miller, leaving, I hope, around 30 minutes for your questions. And now let's welcome Baroness Nora O'Neill to give her opening remarks.
1: The very great advantage of speaking first is that I know that I'm the one who has to sketch the landscape and that I can leave very big gaps because I've got some expertise following in my wake to uh, correct and tidy up. Uh, In my view, we've seen a massive but pretty confused discussion of press freedom since the hacking scandal erupted. Discussions of media freedom and regulation have consistently failed to distinguish different conceptions of freedom of expression, different justifications, and their differing limitations. And they haven't given adequate reasons for preferring one rather than another version. Uh, Lord Justice Leveson's report proposed a two-tier system of press regulation. Namely, retaining self-regulation... And then, as a barrier to state, government, or corporate control, a second order body, the recognition panel, which would be responsible for identifying which media self-regulating bodies, there might be a number of them, met certain standards. And that would enable readers to tell which parts, at least of the print media, are adhering to adequate process the only disciplines proposed by this two-tier system are certain advantages, financial advantages, for those parts of the media that belong to self-regulatory bodies that when judged by the recognition panel are said to meet adequate standards and, of course, the immense advantage to readers of having some indication of who is meeting which standards and who is perhaps not meeting those standards. Now, perhaps the biggest surprise since Lord Justice Leveson uh, reported was that all of this was implemented not by legislation but by a royal charter. Uh, That surprised me very much at first. It's a fairly archaic mechanism, uh, but it perhaps has a purpose in that it it removes the auditing of press regulation from government control and parliamentary control. It makes it very difficult for for things to be altered. So the Royal Charter that has been proposed has not been voted on by Parliament. There have been lots of debates on it, but it has not been voted on. Uh, But it has strong cross-party endorsement. It's quite an interesting situation. The Royal Charter or Royal Charters are a Privy Council structure and this one can be amended if that's approved by both Houses of Parliament and where relevant the Scottish Parliament with at least a two-thirds majority in both Houses and where relevant in the Scottish Parliament. That's quite a big hurdle to change. So a central media concern is being met by the Royal Charter in that it's very difficult for any politicians or any government or any party to interfere. It's a non-statutory form of second-order regulation. What it does in effect, what's proposed, is a small independent audit body which, once every few years, would check on any press self-regulating body that volunteers for inspection to see whether it meets the specified standards of independence and and effectiveness. Now, in order to assess whether this is going to be adequate, I think one has to say something about what would adequate be. What are the standards that press regulation, including self-regulation, should meet? Which conception of press freedom is important? We constantly hear very naive claims that because press freedom is very important, press regulation is unacceptable. Those assertions simply beg questions because they don't tell us which conception of press freedom is at stake, which can be justified, which can't be justified. I don't think we can make headway in answering this, which is a central question of our times, without explaining to ourselves why one or another or several conceptions of press freedom can be justified. And we need to do that if we're to say anything useful about which forms of press and media regulation are or are not acceptable. So gestures towards vague or dogmatic claims about press freedom, of which we've had an incredible number, are simply pointless, and their constant repetition doesn't make them convincing. Let me give you an example of the sort of thing I mean. I've heard a large number of people associated with certain newspapers say, the press should be free within the law. When you're arguing about what the law should be, it really isn't very helpful to say the press should be free within the law. You have to take on on the question of what the law should be, and that's a different question. So what should we focus on? As I'm here in uh, a personal capacity, I'm going to allow myself to say a little bit that's philosophical. And what I thought might be useful, some of you will like this, some of you will really hate it, is what is it we're trying to regulate? Is it speech content or is it speech acts? Both approaches have been tried. Traditional forms of censorship prohibited content. For example, content that was classified as blasphemous or obscene. Some newer forms of speech regulation, such as data protection laws, try to regulate content that's classified as personal. But in general, the regulation of speech acts is much more common than the regulation of content, and I think it's also more feasible and less controversial. Speech acts such as defaming, abusing, threatening, bribing, intimidating, defrauding, passing off, breaching confidence, can be regulated, prohibited, and in some cases even criminalized. In some cases that's seen as uncontroversial, and other claims are seen as controversial or unacceptable. Now, content regulation here doesn't, is intended in a semantic sense, namely that certain sorts of content should be regulated, not the Ofcom sense of the term for those of you who uh, follow media regulation. Content regulation, in my view, has three deficiencies, and it's consequently nearly always problematic and difficult. Here are the three reasons. First, Given the indeterminacy of meaning, that's content, there are always going to be many ways of understanding any given proposition. So attempts to regulate speech by regulating content are going to be open to uncertainty. A proposition may be open both to interpretations under which its use would violate a given approach to content regulation and to interpretations under which its use would not do so. Attempts to regulate speech content because it is, for example, blasphemous or obscene illustrate that point pretty well. People just disagree about what's blasphemous and what's obscene. Content that apparently falls under these headings may be open to other and unobjectionable readings. And conversely, uh, recent debates about uh, whether offensive speech should be regulated illustrate this rather well people point out quite correctly that what is offensive is a subjective matter some people find things offensive that other people regard as amusing etc second attempts to regulate speech content of which there've been many in the past have often been defeated or rendered ineffective, or even rendered laughable by methods such as fictionalizing suggestion, parody, or satire, which manage to communicate prohibited types of content while bypassing, or at least appearing to bypass, the censored categories of content. So it doesn't work very well. Thirdly, the presumed purpose of regulating content can often be undercut by inferring restricted or prohibited content from permitted content. Most disclosure of content that others aim to control is by inference, not discovery. But prohibiting inferences, or inferential disclosure, I think it's coming to be called, isn't feasible. And it's become less feasible today because information is held very frequently in organized forms and electronically stored And as we know, restricted content, for example, personal data, may be revealed by mining and linking lawfully held data, which could reveal information that would otherwise have been secure or confidential or private. I'll not bother with the distinctions for a moment. So do these sorts of difficulties arise with attempts to regulate speech acts? after acts too can be described in many ways and disputes about their permissibility are ubiquitous what one of us sees as a threat another may view as a joke what one person views as fraud another person may think of as routine commercial practice what one person judges defamatory or abusive others may see as no more than tasteless and so on and on and on Indeterminate speech acts, however, do differ from indeterminate speech content because we very often have authoritative procedures for fixing the classification of speech acts, whereas we don't often for fixing the classification of speech content. The courts can determine that a certain speech act was or was not abusive, was or was not coercive in the context, was or was not defamatory we don't grant the court powers to determine the meaning of speech content outside certain defined areas, e.g. interpretation of contracts or the law itself. We no longer accord the courts or any other body unrestricted authority to interpret content precisely because we've long concluded that free speech and media freedoms must be protected. So today's debates aren't about free speech versus regulated speech or free speech versus censorship they are about differing versions of these freedoms and they can't be resolved without looking at the arguments for the different versions. Many of the classical arguments for speech rights freedom of speech, of worship, of the press, of self-expression, of expression artistic freedom, academic freedom, you know, it has varieties leave it quite unclear whether the object of regulation is intended to be speech content or speech acts in general, however, it's my belief that the more influential, famous, and often adequate arguments focus on speech acts, not speech content. Three types of arguments recur again and again in, and now quite often beyond, the liberal tradition. They rely on quite different assumptions, and they read quite divergent conclusions, and I think two of the three are pretty useless as a basis for an account or justification of media freedom. Let me start out with speech rights and the discovery of truth. Venerable argument. Many early arguments for speech rights, going back to the 17th century, focus on speech that aims at truth, truth claims. The acts they have in mind are claiming that something is true. This argument was articulated by Milton, reinforced by Mill, and it has been repeated and repeated, and we all know it. But boiled down to essentials, it amounts to the thought that unless we permit and protect the utterance and publication of claims that may be false, we won't be able to check and challenge one another's claims or assertions, and that's actually going to hamper the discovery of truth. Milton made the point with magnificent confidence, but I think his argument has some problems. (coughs) Here's Milton. Uh, 1644. Though all the winds of doctrine were let loose to play upon the earth, so truth be in the field, we do injuriously by licensing and prohibiting to misdoubt her strength. Let her and falsehood grapple. Whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter, stirring even today. And many later writers have followed him, saying that truth will be revealed if we permit false claims to contend with true claims, We should allow confrontation, competition and conflict and truth will emerge victorious. Um, Mill used it too. He'd said the clearer perception and livelier impression of truth will be produced by its collision with error. I don't think collisions very often do produce much of benefit. And of course it recurs in the 20th century image of the marketplace of ideas. But these particular arguments for freedom of speech and publication that invoke metaphors of conflict and triumph simply ignore the ethical and epistemic norms and disciplines that are actually required if what we want is to make a truth claim. truth seeking is demanding the discovery of truth isn't achieved by confrontation or assertion think about the procedures and disciplines used for truth seeking in courts of law in academic research That reminds us that where truth is the aim, there are a lot of ethical and epistemic norms that matter. Procedures of inquiry that fail to seek or respect evidence, to aim for accuracy, to insert the qualifications, or that are less than honest, simply don't help the discovery of truth. But There's a second reason why the needs of truth-seeking won't really help us to justify media freedoms, These appeals are only relevant to speech that makes truth claims. They don't offer any reasons for freedom of speech that doesn't make truth claims. But a lot of communication, including a lot of media communication, doesn't aim at truth. Think of genres such as short stories, puzzles, opinion pieces, horoscopes, artistic and literary content. They may include some truth claims, but they have quite other aims. So appeals to the needs of truth-seeking, I think, won't give us a broad enough view of Uh, Media freedoms. They may be relevant to those parts of the media that make truth claims or that sort of media content that makes truth claims, media activity that makes truth claims. Where media speech does aim at truth, no doubt the media freedoms are likely to have to be hedged by the disciplines and standards that are indispensable for discovering and communicating truth in a particular area. Arguments from the needs of media truth-seeking, including the needs of investigative journalism, are, I suspect, likely to support appropriately regulated rather than wholly unregulated media. I did say that. Let me hedge it now. Of course, this doesn't tell us whether the relevant regulation should be self-regulation, and if so, whether by editors or by others. That much-prostituted but utterly necessary activity, investigative journalism reminds us how important this is. And I take it that any convincing approach to media regulation would need to make a special case for the selective exemption from requirements to demonstrate adherence to the disciplines of truth-seeking for genuine investigative journalism in matters of public interest. It shouldn't, however, give a blanket license for bogus investigative journalism, of which we've had rather a lot. Second argument, famous argument for uh, speech rights also made by that prolific writer John Stuart Mill who argued for individual rights to freedom of expression and he said that these rights should be unrestricted except where speech acts harm or threaten to harm others. You remember the famous example, you shout fire in the crowded theatre, by the way, when there is no fire. And you create a stampede and people get hurt, or um, uh, similar things. You incite a riot. This argument taken alone, which wasn't Mill's only argument, is not an adequate defense of media freedom. It is an argument for freedom for individuals to express themselves, provided their self-expression is innocuous. It doesn't vindicate generic rights of expression for powerful organizations, including the media, Any convincing argument for media speech rights needs to justify the speech rights of powerful organizations. I don't think that's difficult, but you're not going to get there with Mill's uh, arguments for individual freedom of expression. But unfortunately, the ubiquitous use of the phrase freedom of expression to cover both individual and media speech rights in the post-World War II human rights declarations has blurred the issue. The phrase is sometimes taken as indicating that media freedom of expression should mirror the expansive freedom of expression for which Mill thought individuals should have. I think that's just an error. There's no general argument against restricting the speech of powerful institutions, and we do so in many ways. Corporations that invent their accounts are not seen as expressing themselves. The phrase creative accounting is just a bit of sarcasm. Governments that lie are widely condemned. Even governments that fail to disclose information are now quite often criticised. The speech of the powerful, including media organisations, is not mere self-expression. So let's move now to the post-World War II human rights conventions and generic rights to freedom of expression. The human rights documents, of course, don't justify determinate speech or media freedoms. And that's for two reasons. The first is that declarations aren't in the business of justifying. They proclaim, they declare, they don't justify. The second is that what they proclaim is a highly indeterminate generic right to freedom of expression that is meant to cover both individual speech rights and institutional, including media speech rights. Moreover, the... um, Uh, second article in the European Convention of Human Rights lists a large number of permissible restrictions on freedom of expression and media freedoms in its second clause and I commend the second clause to anybody who wants to see where these things stand. Now I don't think appealing to a a convention or declaration is good enough. I think we've got to have some arguments here. We We won't know which way to go. And so A fourth type of argument focuses on the communicative use of speech. So it's broader than focusing on truth-seeking. This line of thought is ubiquitous. It's not associated with a single thinker. Mill used it uh, in his uh, uh, discussion of liberty of thought and discussion. In U.S. debates on First Amendment jurisprudence, it's associated with Alexander Michael John. A focus on the needs of communication looks, I think, at an account of media speech that is in the business of communicating. The media are not in the business of self-expression, having no selves to express. They're also not restricted to communicating truth claims. So if we're to get an argument that works, we need one that has the right scope. And I think the best one is to look at which speech rights can best protect and enable the communication that we need for social, cultural, and political life. So I'm going to say just a word or two about necessary conditions for communication. If we think media freedom is best justified as supporting the communication we want for social, cultural, and democratic life, the media must communicate, and therefore they must respect the norms and standards that are indispensable to successful communication even when they're ignoring norms that matter for communicating truth. Speech acts fail to communicate if they're unintelligible to or unassessable by their intended audiences. Unintelligibility may seem an uncontroversial demand, but it's not empty. Uh, so unintelligibility may seem uncontroversial, though it's not empty. Accessibility is a non triple demand. Readers must be able to assess others, including the media's communication, if they are to use it, to be empowered by it, to allow it to play a part in social, cultural and political life. And the accessibility of media communication could indeed be supported by forms of media self-regulation. But there are forms of media self-regulation that fail to do so and make it difficult and sometimes impossible for readers to judge the content presented to them. Self-regulation could, of course, in principle be enough. But in the UK, we have rich experience that it isn't. And that was, after all, Leveson's reason for thinking that self-regulation needs additional stiffening if it's to serve the purpose of enabling proper communication in a world of asymmetries of power and information that make it hard for us to judge what we read, hear, and see. Now, back to the Royal Charter. What other than auditing and reporting on standards of self regulation would the Royal Charter offer? Supposedly, inter alia, the following an impartial complaints service. The Press Complaints Commission, of course, has had a complaints service, but there were many complaints about the complaints service. Cheaper arbitration if people feel that their legal rights have been breached. Protection for investigative journalism by limiting the ways in which the powerful can block publication of articles about them by threats of legal intervention. Some explicit safeguard for free speech. And in the end, a newspaper that repeatedly breaks the law or the self-regulator's code of practice would face investigation and potentially fine, heavy fines. And corrections and apologies would get appropriate prominence, which I have to say is quite a nice thing. But will anything change? These are very early days, and I don't think things are clear. The only self-regulatory body in existence is the newspaper's version called IPSO, the Independent Press Standards Organization, and the only challenger is the fledgling Impress, which is the independent monitor for the press, um, whose website states that it will regulate the press in compliance with Leveson's criteria, will encourage the highest ethical standards in journalism while safeguarding the fundamental right to freedom of expression. Independent self regulation, which complies with Leveson's criteria, can work for the press and the public. Now, I think. I, for one, hope that it can. But there's a lot of unfinished business here. We don't yet have uh, the regulatory body. Impress haven't yet got off the ground. Uh, To have a monopoly of press regulation continuing it may not be a healthy thing. I think that those questions will need to be answered. But I want to finish by mentioning one other major set of issues that I think has been skirted in all the debates since the hacking scandal broke. And that is the question of plurality of ownership. When you go uh, go online and look at who owns the British media, you will find it's rather few people. They are mainly not UK citizens Those that are UK citizens quite often are not domiciled in the UK. No other country that I know of is so permissive about allowing foreign ownership of the media and allowing things like debates about taxation to be under the control of those who don't pay it, unlike the rest of us. So I hope that one of the things that a future government will have the courage to deal with is the question of the ownership of the media. We reduced the uh, barrier to concentration of ownership in the 2003 Communications Act. I now think that was a mistake and perhaps we would do better if we ensured greater plurality of ownership. We all know plurality of ownership is no guarantee of diversity of content and the line taken but nevertheless plurality of ownership is some safeguard in a democracy and there are many
2: Thank you very much indeed, Nick. Uh, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I think that the first thing I ought to say is that I come at these questions from a non philosopher angle. And although I currently work in a university, most of what I have to say must principally be coloured by my experience as a working journalist. Honora referred to, in the context of the Arguments since the Leveson Inquiry report to unfinished business. And most of my focus is on uh, the unfinished business. Nick referred to a book I'd published recently which showed me that the decay and deterioration that occurred in the popular print media, which was the focus of Leveson's inquiry, began long before the internet exacerbated the business problems of those newspapers, although they were, in fact, in decline for a very long time across the post-war era. If we now look back at the figures, the pressure on them came from a combination of the extremely unusual uh, market structure for printed papers in the UK and, of course, steadily increasing competition from other platforms. Television, for example, did not replace or displace popular press, but it did change it. And that popular press lost its moral bearings to the point where its business model began to depend on such now well-known things as blagging and phone hacking. It does not inevitably have to happen that way, and by way of contrast, think about what happened in the same era when television arrived in a different market structure in the United States. Papers largely became city-wide or city-based monopolies that had to appeal to extremely broad audiences and be popular with everyone. It was an entirely different set of developments. I think Honore is absolutely right to say that there is a large amount of defensive bluster about press freedom. But it is also equally true to say that you cannot just waive terms about, ethical, about ethics and justify any form of regulation. I don't it's not particularly part of my opening presentation, although we may very well get into this in the question and answer. I'm less reassured or convinced than Honora is about the long term safety of that famous two thirds majority in the Royal Charter or the ability of regulating organisations to withdraw if they don't like what MPs are up to we still have to find a way to make media ethics practically effective while allowing the media to perform its proper function. I would say that we would best do this by focusing really on three things. Privacy, first and foremost. Not all of the issues that were in front of Leveson or that have troubled people, even if they weren't the subject of the Leveson Inquiry, can be reduced to privacy, but I do think that it was the first and foremost issue I think we need to look again at how we use the concept of public interest, and I think we must look at law and regulation together. They form an absolute continuum. Just dealing with privacy for one second and the need for the law and come to that for regulation to adapt. One of the witnesses that Lord Leveson heard was the author J.K. Rowling, and she complained, quite justifiably and reasonably, about the treatment of herself and her family at the hands of popular papers. Now imagine somebody flying a pilotless drone with a camera over her garden and publishing the pictures from a server that is offshore. That is actually how privacy issues are now going to develop. Anybody who did that is very unlikely, I would suggest, to think of themselves as the press. I also talked about inferential disclosure, a different aspect of privacy which I think is going to become very important. I can think of two groups of people who should be worried about metadata and inferential disclosure. One of them is uh, patients whose medical records are going to be are being explored for the use of the data and from which inferential disclosure can be made about who they are this is a very big issue that i think hasn't come up yet but i think will be very big as we've looked at the disclosures by edward snowden about nsa <coughs> gchq and so on a lot of people have been concerned about privacy issues and they have been concerned About the distinction between metadata and the surveillance of the content of communications. There's an extremely good essay just gone up on the site of the Committee to Protect Journalists by a Belgian author who points out that uh, the metadata that the NSA is undoubtedly gathering, nobody's disputing they're gathering the metadata means that really the sources of most journalists who are using digital communications are quite easy to establish, whether they thought they were confidential or not. So the means to capture and distribute information without permission being needed are growing all the time. And the law really is going to have to look at this again. Simply using as your privacy law the Human Rights Act, which poses Article 8 against Article 10, the right to privacy versus the right to free expression, and leaving a motorway-sized area for lawyers. It's very agreeable for people like Gavin to be doing this, I can see, but I don't think it's the right way for public policy or the public interest to be satisfied. I had hoped that Lord Leveson would start a really good debate on the use of public interest as an idea to pivot the distinction about... Uh, how media ethics should work. It's now a very battered and abused and misused idea. You could, if you wanted, call it public value. I think society has a legitimate interest in the quality of public information, debate and reason, and that society is entitled to say what is valuable where there is a claim that some information shouldn't be disclosed. In other words, to weigh the claim of value against the possibility that it shouldn't be disclosed. And, of course, it is inadvisable that the government or state should interfere in content. My modest proposal to Lord Leveson was to try and link law and regulation and public interest via incentives. I suggested to him, I'd better make full disclosure before I even tell you what this shopping list is, that he took no interest in this idea whatever, but what I suggested to him was that if we put proper public interest defences in all of the laws likely to affect disclosure and the news media and gave explicit guidance to judges about how that public interest idea or that phrase if you like should be, interested, should be interpreted i'm sorry that in particular the privacy law needed rewriting to make that public interest exception more explicit And that when news media publications were up against the law in court, that public interest defense could only be accessed if editorial integrity could be shown. And I think that if that worked as I would like to see it work, I think that would create a self-regulation organization, in other words, a third-party inspection of editorial quality and integrity, if you like, which would work better than what has been proposed by Leveson. Now, does my scheme have disadvantages on the ethical plane? I have some colleagues and I know some journalists who regard it as impermissible for uh, the state to define what is good in journalism. In other words, the public interest test is the state saying we can define what's good journalism. I don't accept that argument myself. And obviously the risk of the scheme which I have very briefly outlined to you would be that it would be a gamble as to whether press organisations would take part in it. But it would allow, I think, a certain amount of... uh, It would bear, I'm sorry, on what Honora called speech acts and it would root the system of protection of potential victims of press misbehaviour in the law rather than looking first At the regulation. A lot of the concern is about the misuse, and rightly, of power and influence by big media companies. And it is essentially the enforcement of the law which has made them more cautious now than they were. And I think in a hyper connected world, the structure that I have described would work for information on any platform. One very last point about the concern of digital communications and their kind of dark side, if you like. I think digital will in the end be considered to have contributed to what I will call useful openness in news media. Honora talked about accessibility. It is astonishing to me that in a digital age in which text can be full of links, that serious publications, often legacy newspapers, of course, don't effectively footnote what they do. It seems to me to be a really obvious and easy thing. If you want to demonstrate that you've got basis for most, of course you're not going to disclose confidential sources, but actually really quite a lot of reporting doesn't involve confidential sources. They could be in the text you're reading tomorrow morning. I cannot, for example... Understand why a paper like the Financial Times doesn't do this more often. And I would just one remark about history. When new and disruptive technologies appear, there is usually a lot of worry about the anarchy that they create. This happens with almost all new communications technologies. That anarchy is usually followed by a period in which... Risks are managed and order is restored. A lot of good policy in free society is about proportion. We don't stop building houses because people burgle houses. We try and manage and minimize the problem. I'll finish by quoting Mario Vargas Llosa, who said Scandal driven journalism is the perverse stepson of the culture of freedom. You cannot suppress it without dealing a deadly blow to freedom. Thank you for your attention.
3: Thank you very much.
0: And Gavin, speak from here or the election as you wish.
4: Mm-hmm. <coughs> uh, well, I'm a, a mere advocate, a uh, specialist in arguing journalistic free speech rights in the courts Uh, and because I like the challenge of arguing for those rights uh, as it is undoubtedly in front of some of our judges, a challenge, and have to make my living doing this, uh, I've always acted for the entire spectrum of broadcasters and publishers. Uh, from uh, respected outlets like the Wall Street Journal and the Times, the Guardian, the BBC, to pretty well all of the tabloids and their journalists. Uh, And I've even tried but failed um, to establish the rights of the shock jock on our airwaves, on our radio airwaves, in the teeth of what I would regard as Ofcom uh, nanny state regulation. Uh, my client was an ex Sun columnist and right wing polemicist called John Gaunt, not to be confused with John of Gaunt, an <laughs> important historical and Shakespearean character. Um, by this stage, hosting a popular chat show on a radio channel called Talksport, which I'm sure you all listen to in the morning. Uh, and he fell out with one of his interviewees, a local councillor, and asked him on air what I always thought was a time honoured leftist question. So you were a Nazi then? <laughs> My client clarified his position as the interview progressed, calling the politician variously a health fascist, a health Nazi, and then eschewing all pretense at political speech, an ignorant pig. <laughs> Uh, Less than 1%, here's the rub, less than 1% of his listeners complained uh, about the show. But Ofcom, the regulator, took a dim view and labelled the interview uh, offensive. And the Divisional Court and the Court of Appeal uh, agreed with Ofcom. So we're going to Strasbourg and we'll see what the venerable judges in the European Court of Human Rights make of John Gaunt and his insults. Um, Now, I thought some of this, at any rate, the stuff that I do, might put me in an aura's firing line. Uh, Though perhaps not John Gaunt, I think, content-wise. It's a judgment as to offensive speech, and we could happily, I think, differ about uh, whether it should be regulated or not. Anyway, so worried about being in her firing line, uh, I... um, it did what all good advocates are supposed to do, uh, you know, learn about your opponent, their arguments and technique, rather like a, a boxing match. So I listened this afternoon to a half an hour podcast of Honora speaking at a conference in Oxford in 2012 about press regulation. And as with her speech tonight, the broadcast, uh, the content of the broadcast was wholly unobjectionable. There was no confidential information. There's no defamation or blasphemy or obscenity, and as a speech act, as Honora would call it, it was as with her presentation tonight, near perfect. Um, all of the necessary conditions of communication were met. It was accessible, intelligible, um, uh, and the audience were given a right of reply. I think at the end, although it wasn't broadcast on the on the podcast. Uh, she might perhaps have disclosed her conflict of interest or at any rate her interest uh, in the broadcast, namely in the publishing market, and she concealed, I think, when she made the presentation, as she did tonight, although Nick introduced us to her books, uh, the possibility that her presentation might lead listeners to run out and buy one of her books, um, but I'm sure that was just just pressure of time. Um, Uh, But overall, it it, it was a big mistake for me to listen to that podcast because it told me two things. Uh, First of all, if Honora only knew some of the arguments I have run in court, I would for sure be in her firing line. So I was trying to think of one of these, uh, arguing the expansive right to freedom of expression. And and I realised that probably the worst I could do was a case I did against... Tomlinson, who's sitting down in the second row, which makes this even worse, Um, which which was a case, a privacy claim, bought by Rio Ferdinand, based on an article in the Mirror, based on um, source material, if I can call it that, from an ex-girlfriend of his. And uh, this was reported in the Metro... In this way, and I've j- all I can do is read it. Really, I mean, it's shameful when I look back on it. But um, uh, we won. We won the case anyway. But Carly's story. This is this is the young. This is the woman. Told her story of an alleged 13-year relationship with Manchester United's Rio F- Ferdinand, to help her quote emotional development. court has been to- has been told. The interior designer gave a detailed account of her supposed liaisons with Ferdinand in an article published by the Daily Mirror last year. Ferdinand is now suing the newspaper, claiming that a line needs to be drawn over what he believes amounts to a gross invasion of privacy. However, in defense, Gavin Miller QC told the High Court that Miss Story's decision to go public was not a typical kiss and tell, saying instead she needed to do so to move on from the alleged affair. Mr. Miller explained, "Come on, I did it with a straight. I just did it with a straight face for over a decade. She has kept these experiences to herself, while the claimant has, in the meantime, liberally placed a mass of information about his own p- private life in the public domain for substantial commercial p- personal gain. Telling her side of the story was perceived by Miss Story to be an important part of her emotional development and personal autonomy." has helped her to move on from and recover from the relationship. So that is Mills' uh, right to self-expression, pleaded on behalf of the source for the story, who was paid a certain amount of money, which Hugh screwed out of us at a pre-hearing. Uh, we actually have to say how much money she was paid for the story. <laughs> Not very much. Pleaded in aid of this broad, expansive right of media, uh, free expression. So that I'm, I'm not sure, and Nora will tell us later. I don't imagine she would approve greatly about that. And she said in this broadcast, in this podcast, in a, in, a, in a wonderful throwaway line, that the gesture, as she described it, towards the generic free speech right, which she spoke about tonight, is the last resort of the scandal. Um, and I'm sorry to have to tell her, it's normally my first resort in court... <laughs> when I'm acting for journalists and newspapers. And then after that, I just try and mitigate, really. That's all I can do. My last resort, actually, is we didn't cause too much harm to the claimant or the person on the other side in the case. Um, So there you are. I'm very ill-equipped, I'm afraid, as a mere legal hat, to do three or less 15 rounds with Anora and her political philosophy. Uh, boxing ring and that remains my feeling after tonight's truly masterly speech uh, I am in awe of of her grasp of the philosophical issues so the finer points of philosophy and definitely the tabloids are no go areas for me tonight um, but I will say a word about the Guardian's Snowden coverage and I advised them in June and July last year about the presentation of that coverage and, and what they shouldn't, shouldn't do um, Uh, but for the most part hope to steer clear of the UK press altogether. Uh, I try to remain virtuous, tainted though I am, by visiting other countries with less press freedom than us uh, and engaging aggressively on foreign shores in my usual scoundrel appeal to a broad press right of freedom of speech. Such countries tend to have a surfeit of regulation or have had a surfeit of regulation, and we shouldn't forget that. Uh, both as to process and content. Uh, I've spent an awful lot of time in Eastern Europe in the last 15 years for the Council of Europe, the Organisation of Security and Cooperation in Europe, the EU, Brussels Commission, and so on and so forth. And there's appalling prehistory there of over-regulation and limitation of the press. But when I go there, I always recall the uh, words of the great Russian writer Vasily Grossman in his um, Second World War masterwork Life and Fate where he says of the Soviet newspaper editor Sigaydak and I quote he considered that the aim of his newspaper was to educate the reader not indiscriminately disseminate chaotic information about all kinds of probably fortuitous events which I suppose is what one might say our press specializes in um, Fourteen years ago, I was in Serbia after the NATO airstrikes and the fall of Milosevic. Uh, and uh, in the process of the fall, from that phenomenal overregulation towards the end of his um, period in government, uh, in fact, a wholly unregulated media environment had broken out in Serbia and around Belgrade in particular. Um, citizens at the top of all these tall tower blocks that you see on the way into Belgrade had put antennae up, and every tower block had become a radio station and was broadcasting its own version of the truth to the Belgrade uh, populace. Um, there was no process at all. There was lots of chaotic information and ideas swirling around at the protest, essentially of amateur publishers publishing leaflets, broadsheets, and broadcasting from the top of tower blocks activist students and so on and so forth. They later became sort of semi-professional but not really qualified journalists in the first few years after Milosevic.
5: So my job
4: was to go there and teach them European norms and standards of responsible journalism. And all I wanted to say is I felt a little, not just presumptuous, but party-pooping in turning up and trying to teach them all that. I see the importance of it. But it was, of course, because... That was, for a period, a living example of what Michael John describes. Freedom of speech springing from the necessities uh, of a program of self-government, of a group of people working through how they self-govern and bringing down an oppressive authoritarian government. And so when we think about why press freedom is important, I am with Anora to that extent. I think the closest one comes to a really good principle. Uh, which you can take from these pragmatic experiences in less fortunate countries than ours, uh, is, um, uh, is Michael Johnson. We should remember what an unrestrained, unregulated press looks like in its pure, vibrant, unrestrained form when it's important that it's like that. Um, and it's not such a bad thing when we're being told by government what to say and what not to say. I think we must also be careful about overemphasizing the need for responsible journalism and the duties of journalists. Um, uh, To hop a continent in July last year, I was in China um, uh, 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 speaking at a seminar about the internet and the burgeoning internet and the problems it's presenting for the authorities in China. And uh, there was a wonderful professor, Professor Xi, a wonderful lady, a media professor, very eminent at Beijing University clever and interesting uh, woman and uh, I made a lengthy presentation as is my want about the broad free speech right and human rights in general and she came up to me afterwards and she said Gavin she said and this is absolutely the sense she said she said human rights are all very well but and I thought I've never heard this sentence before in Western Europe <laughs> nobody says anything like that And she went on to argue the case, the essentially sort of Confucian case, that it really wasn't an issue of rights. It was an issue about responsibilities, publishers, broadcasters, citizens' responsibilities um, to recognize the problems that the unrestrained publication on the Internet was causing the party and the government and to behave more responsibly. Well, when I left in July, I watched what happened, and two months later in September, a new law was passed, which you've probably read, about promulgating rumors on the Internet uh, in China. And uh, the more readers there are for your rumor, the longer you go to prison in China. Um, I think the principle is if you have more than 5,000 hits, uh, you go um, to prison for three years, which is a perverse way of sentencing people. And, of course, the problem in China is there is no truth. There is no base point for what is true and what's not true when it comes to corruption or the actions of government or even celebrities or anybody. Um, So everything everything is a rumor, to be honest with you, and that's why people clutch at it, and that's why they've made it dangerous to publicize that sort of material uh, on the Internet. Um, uh, so I finished just with The Guardian and Snowden. We, we obviously we live in a very um, developed democracy with lots of rights and it's all very good stuff. But when the chips are down, uh, our government and our politicians can uh, try to interfere with the press. Make no mistake about it. The government in the early part of that uh, reporting in June tried to shut down the whole story using the denotis system. Um, which is a peculiar British form of governmental regulation under the table but still exists and persuaded most of the rest of the media not to cover the story. Um, And then they tried to close it down by threats of injunctions leading to the the, the now infamous smashing of the hard drives. So I'm afraid that... I don't particularly trust the government and politicians... Uh, and that influences my view about regulation. I'm against politicians being involved in setting up regulatory structures, inclined to be against it, for the press, for a number of reasons. First, I think it's a gift to the oppressive overseas regimes that I involve myself with. I mean, the first thing people say in these countries is, look what Britain is doing, and they use that as a justification for even more regulation of their own press. Secondly, I don't, like I think George said, I don't trust politicians to leave it uh, where it is once they've started. um, There's too much bad blood between them and the press for it to be left where it is. Thirdly, as George also said, I don't think it'll manage to regulate the global media or the Internet. It will just catch our domestic news publishers, and I think that's unfair. And fourthly, I think it's a disincentive to um, proper self-regulation within newspapers, readers, editors, proper editorial and journalistic standards. And I don't think it'll work. Um, I don't think it'll work any more than some of the bad periods of self-regulation that we've had. I think we have to find ways to educate and train journalists and internalize values of good journalism and ethics in newsrooms. Uh, And that's the only real hope of success, I think.
0: Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> to <laughs> Nick, two, one point, yes, maybe. and Nora will just come back quickly and then we'll open
1: for questions. i just make well, one point about each. Uh, would uh, the Royal Charter route uh, uh, enable additional political or governmental interference in the press? The answer is it would not. Because under the present system, the sovereignty of Parliament means that a simple majority could always be used to regulate the press. That is a consequence of the constitutional structure we have. So actually, the Royal Charter, uh, quaint though it is as a mechanism, is actually a way in which government has tied its hands behind its back to a very considerable extent, if you think about getting that double two-thirds majority. Uh, the, uh, the, I, I've now lost the point. I was going to make one point about what you said. It, it, it's perhaps a point about the. Um, I'm sorry, I, wait, I will find it later.
6: Okay.
3: All right.
0: Now we've got about 26, 25 minutes for questions, and I'm sure there'll be plenty. If you could just say who you are and your affiliation. Yes, please. <laughs> Angela.
6: Goldsmith, And I really want to take you up, um, Gavin Miller, on the last comment you made, the coup de grace, if you like, at the end of your uh, very entertaining speech. Is it all right? Yep. Okay. Um, And that is that you immediately shove it back to the individual journalist and say, it's all about you as an individual being ethical. Now, if you've actually read the pages of the Leveson Inquiry, you will discover that it has absolutely nothing to do with individual journalists. That actually the individual journalists, probably the ones who you have defended, are fed in at the bottom of a vicious system which insists that if you are going to get a job, you do what you're told. And if you don't do what you're told, you leave. Which is a very simple system in the tabloid press for making sure that by the time you get to the top of that system, you are thoroughly indoctrinated in the way of behaviour of that particular organisation. And the fact that that we in the UK are so particularly bad in the way in which we behave as journalists is because, and it was mentioned I think by George Brock, we have a very particular structure to our national press. We have an extremely competitive um, national press operating in a more and more competitive situation where in order for they believe in order to survive they have to become more and more cutthroat and yes I would agree that we can trace this back perhaps to the beginning of radio and then to the beginning of television but nevertheless we are we can see it happening and we can see it happening those of us here who teach journalists can see it happening to the young journalists who leave our institutions where they are certainly told about journalistic ethics and they are certainly told about the law and they are certainly told about the PCC regulations and the NUJ um, Code of Conduct. The the issue, as far as I'm concerned, about and and it does distress me that you chose to make fun of Anora O'Neill rather than actually listening to what she said, because there is certainly a debate to be had. I don't agree with everything that the professor says, I think a lot of what she says is very interesting, and I think that if we had a sensible debate where we actually sat down and said, is there mileage in looking at dealing with process rather than simply dealing with with, with speech, is there another way of tackling this issue? Now, as I said, I don't agree with all the things, and I've read a lot of what she's written, I, for one, and I'm sure any journalist in this room would say, no, we would not like to see um, tra- complete transparency in relation to sources, but I absolutely agree well, with George I, Brock. I never
1: argued for that.
6: Good. <laughs> I agree with George Brock, and I think it's absolutely necessary that we ha- have some form of regulation, which means that linking to existing public sources becomes the norm Now, I don't know how we do it, but it certainly isn't happening simply by leaving the press press to do it by themselves.
0: Angela, I'd like to give Gavin a chance to respond to the very powerful point you put to him, if that's okay. (laughs) Thank you very much. Gavin, do you want to come back to, to respond in any way to Angela's question? Well, I,
4: I was... I, I, I didn't mean to make fun of... Uh, no, Nora. I, I didn't
1: took, take it that you had in any way.
4: I thought, I thought uh, your presentation was wonderful, I, and I, I thought think the podcast from was wonderful. From me.
1: your point of view, it missed the issues you're interested with. It, it dealt with the issues that I'm interested yes, with. Exactly. That's about where okay. it is. I didn't... I, the point I made at the
4: end was that I don't think it will work. That was the point I made at the end. I don't think uh, there's any greater prospect of success for the regulatory system that's anticipated under the Royal Charter than there is under a bad self-regulatory system. Um, I don't think externalizing it and building all that apparatus into it is the answer to the problem. And I, I don't think it would have any better prospect of dealing with The scandal that was phone hacking should it occur again than a self-regulatory system I just don't believe that I don't see the sequence of events by which that would happen through a regulatory system I wasn't suggesting it was all down to the individual journalist the position of the individual journalist is important and I don't need lectures about how newsrooms and tabloids work because I've spent a lot of time working with those people I'm perfectly familiar with it I represented one of the major news groups at the Leveson Inquiry. I've read the Leveson report, thank you very much, and I know what the evidence was at the Leveson Inquiry. Um, And I know the testimony of some of the tabloid journalists who complained about the pressure they were under. That was exactly my point. You're making my point. Unless you can change the culture in those newsrooms, and those organizations, so that that pressure isn't put on individual journalists, you won't solve these sorts of problems. And that is something that has to be done within newspapers and within newsrooms. Some of them are very good at it. There are examples of good practice and there are examples of bad practice in our newspaper industry. I, just, I, I was making a very simple point, which is that I don't agree that politicians trying to sort it out is the solution.
0: George, you want two, to come in? Two extremely
2: brief, brief observations. Uh, one is, just picking up Gavin's point just now about newsrooms... Um, My modest proposal about law and regulation and how they work was designed to act as an incentive in popular newsrooms. I think if you rerun the history of the news of the world, which was quite often in court, and they had wanted to access a public interest defense which they wouldn't get if they couldn't show that they actually knew what their journalists were doing and were controlling it, that strikes me as an effective incentive. And just on the wider economic context of popular papers, this process is happening very slowly. But as news publishing businesses, popular papers, the wheels are falling off these businesses.
0: slowly, but the wheels are falling off. We're not in the state that we were 20 years ago. OK I'm going to take two questions together because I'm sure more and more will come. Gentlemen at the back, and then Steve Barnett will come back to you next.
5: Yeah. Uh, ever so briefly, oh, I'm with Orev, by the way. My name's Gareth Vincent. Ever so briefly, the point about uh, worrying about journalist ethics when they go into a news organization, well, I want to echo Angela's point, uh, that's, that's ridiculous. You know, it reminds one of the old joke about the Metropolitan Police. Do you have to be racist to join? No, we train you. Um, this is what news organizations basically do. Uh, I was interested by Gavin Miller's uh, talk about uh, problems of uh, Eastern European overregulation. It does remind me of working with uh, opposition groups, trade union groups, 30 and more years ago before uh, the end of the Cold War and the the fall of the Iron Curtain and whatnot. It was part of the function of the media to destroy people's reputations uh, on behalf of the state at the time. It had gone beyond the point where they just sort of locked you up and threw away the key. They destroyed public figures' reputations if they opposed the regime. And that is exactly what... The, the media that we have, the print the media that we have, do now, not on behalf of a state uh, regime, but on, 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 a, on behalf of our own kind of oligarchs. And it seems to me that you're missing the elephant in the room and, and, and in, 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 your, in your observations.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Steve Barnett, you had a question.
3: The back. Uh, thanks, Steve Arnott, University of Westminster. Um, I, th- th- just to first of all to endorse what Honora said about um, plurality media ownership being actually one of the crucial issues here. Like George, I put a modest proposal to Lord Justice Leveson, and I'm afraid it went the same way as his, um, in, into, into Sir Brian's dustbin. Um, I, I've got two points that I want to make. First is uh, in response to uh, Gavin's Council of Despair. Um, which I, I challenge. I, I challenge and I reject. Um, essentially what you're saying, Gavin, and, and I remember 20 years ago, sitting in very similar kinds of discussions uh, in, in, in a much older and more decrepit LSE lecture theater uh, in, in the light of the Calcut report, where new, newspaper journalists and editors were saying, we got it wrong, we're desperately sorry, but we must be allowed to regulate ourselves we know what to do now. We will get it right next time. And for all the reasons that Angela and others have given, we have a structural issue in this country about around the national press who fight like ferrets in a sack and are still going to be fighting, despite what George says, in 20 years' time because that is the nature of our national newspaper market. In order to get scoops, in order to sell newspapers, to do that, they cross the lines. They cross boundaries. They cross their own lines their own code of conduct with impunity they've done it for the last twenty years and they will go on doing it unless something is put in place to turn around and say we have to rely on them to get it right this time it just won't wash because there will be real victims just as there have been over the last twenty years people harassed traumatized distressed pursued whatever so my second point, really, is to both, to, to Gavin and to George, I think there is a narrative which has been encouraged by, I have to say, the press, that we are in, uh, in, in no man's land, that, that this is going nowhere, nowhere, that nothing has happened. Actually, that's not true at all. We actually have a system. It is in its infancy. We do. We do. It's there. It is now. It is in its infancy. There will be an appointments panel which will be set up, which will appoint the recognition panel. At some point, there will be a publication, however small, however um, um, fledgling, which will come along, it will be recognized, and it will trigger the court costs, incentives, the carrots and the sticks, that will then make the big publishers think again. That will happen. It will take time, but the framework is there. Um, (coughs) One last point, Nick, you've been very patient on political involvement, yes, the apparatus has been set up by politicians. They now have nothing whatsoever to do with it. It's not that there is a slight chance that there might be political involvement or it might happen further down the line. There is no chance whatsoever unless, as Honora says, in in a representative democracy, our MPs choose to regulate the press, which they can do at any time. This system, the charter system, does not allow at any point... For political involvement regardless of the two-thirds because once a publisher is recognized and, and they want to change the law then any recognized publisher can just withdraw and the charter remains an empty shell so there really is no risk of political involvement unless and until our politicians decide they want to ban a newspaper which they're quite at liberty to do when they want
0: okay thank you very much steve um comments george kevin particularly aimed at you, it seemed.
3: Perhaps, uh, but, but uh, uh, I mean, j- just just
2: really as a point of correction, Steve, I didn't say that the process wasn't going anywhere. I think I observed that it was going rather slowly, but that, but that was all. You're, you're, I mean, you're perfectly correct to say it may, com- may come into existence. Um, on the wider, more fundamental point, um, we are ending up speculating on the head of a pin, I think, here, because I'm saying I'm anxious about long-term risks, anxiety about long-term risks, by definition, is, it's not possible to predict exactly what I think may, think may go wrong. I don't think the risks are huge. I'd just prefer if they weren't there at all.
1: But they are larger. If I, uh, they were larger before the recognition panel system was established, because then it was open to Parliament and the Scottish Parliament on a simple majority – they only needed a simple majority to do things. And remember the levels of popular anger about press misbehaviour. It could yet have happened. I would have thought if I were thinking about real risks to media freedom, I'd be very thankful that the recognition body system has been established by Royal Charter with those thresholds.
0: Mm-hmm. Gavin, do you want to come back to... Points Steve made, or the first question.
4: Well, I mean, I think we'll just—I ha- mean, we'll have to agree to disagree. I have no problem accepting that um, every ten years or so there is a terrible scandal in the tabloid press, and um, it has to be addressed. I mean, then and, and, and that hacking is hacking is the worst example yet, but hacking a- and um, some of the cases that Leveson looked at form tiny percentage of the copy put out by the British newspaper industry each year, local and national, something Leveson didn't really look at. He picked cases and he picked practices that were self-evidently open to attack and open to criticism and quite improper and quite wrong, but I don't agree that to foist on the entire industry, a regulatory system, and to put them at risk of exemplary damages in court cases, because they don't want to join that politician-created regulatory system, is fair to the industry as a whole. I just don't think it's fair to the industry as a whole. And the point I was making was not... um, uh, The point I was making was, I don't think it'll work. I mean, you haven't answered that point. How would this organisation, let's say it's Impress, that is set up under the charter system, how would it prevent, in bad faith... Criminality by journalists. If they wanted to resort to it again, that sort of hacking. Um, how are they going to do it? They're not the police. I mean, they can they can deal with it after the event. They can pursue complaints and so on and so forth. Um, but hey Kevin,
0: I want to bring in the, 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 the answer
4: is to inculcate the best possible standards in newsrooms. That's the answer.
0: right. takes We've got the gentleman over there. I want to take a question from and the person in the front and we'll take, let's take three together we're getting more and more questions
7: Hi, uh, Evan Harris I'm a trustee of Article 19 but I also work for the Hacked Off campaign I enjoyed Gavin Miller's presentation I didn't think it intended in any way to uh, even tease uh, Honora. but when he said that he was surprised to hear human rights are all very well but, and you he had not heard that before you've clearly never met David Blunkett or Christopher Grayling and, and I envy you Um, in that respect you also said that you are against um, politicians setting up regulatory structures for the press well I I really would hope you use your advocacy skills which are obvious to tell the press industry to call off the conservative peer Lord Black who is busy telling another conservative peer Lord Hunt to set up a regulator for the press with the help of a conservative peer Lord Grade Um, because The Royal Charter says the press, without allowing Tory peers or any sort of peers who are party political in, must set up the regulator. Yes, it's true, to come back to the point you've just made, that Parliament has taken a view. But it's far better in a democracy that Parliament takes a view, especially on the advice of a judge after a year-long public inquiry where civic society and the population are behind it. And it's a sort of regulation that is far less than, for example, Denmark has, where number six in the World Press Index, I read, this year, we're number 33 with our completely self-regulatory system, where, again, politicians, because of their mandatory system, have set up a regulatory system from the press. So I hope you would add Denmark to your travels and rail them at number six in the World Press Freedom Index. With with George, I absolutely agree, and many of us do, from the improving press regulation side with the public interest defence argument. But we don't believe, I don't believe it's an either-or. I don't think it's an alternative to what Leveson proposed, and I regret that he didn't endorse it. But my final point is I would say, as I said to you before, um, uh, that... It's not right to say that if only the law was enforced, the problems would be avoided because there are so many breaches, intrusion into grief as one, which you would never want a law to be there for. And if you rely on the law, you're inviting the police into the newsroom, which is chilling in and of itself. So if you had a proper system of self-regulation that was effective, you would have corporate governance systems of the sort you recommend as a linchpin of the public interest defence, that would prevent the sort of things that happened and you wouldn't have the conspiracy to not only allow it but to cover it up that we've seen in Motorman and in all the more than one newspaper group in
0: hacking. Okay, thank you very much. We have a question in the front, gentleman in the orange polo. and you'll be next.
4: Uh, oh, you. uh, good evening, my name is Konstantinos Koulocheris, uh, I'm a third-year student in journalism and communications studies at University here in London. Uh, uh, it was quite an insightful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I would like to ask you if you consider uh, the role of the universities in the media industry has become a crucial one uh, in order to have that shift from uh, destructive journalism to constructive journalism. And I'm asking that because as a third-year student in journalism and communications, I have media events and ethics, and I found it quite
7: crucial in order to understand better what is self-regulation all about. Thank you.
6: Okay,
0: thank you. And the the person behind you.
6: Brunella Longo. I'm a consultant, author, and independent scholar. I was wondering, is there any chance we may end talking about something else? I mean, not just ethics and the media, but mental health and the media learning and the media um, well-being and the media, because uh, the more and more we get into these type of uh, debates, uh, uh, the more, uh, from my point of view, is emerging the need of um, uh, establishing uh, freedom of learning, freedom of thinking, freedom of uh, uh, understanding.
0: Okay,
1: thanks. Yes, Adol, do you want to go first? On the last point, I would say one can always propose, "Why don't we change the subject?" But this evening was designed to talk about ethics of the media, so I suggest we don't.
0: <laughs> Any reactions to Evan Harris's comment, for example, or well, um, well I, 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 I met Evan. I
4: meant. Um, Elected politicians, I agree with you about the House of Lords. It's a, different, it's a different subject, and we shouldn't change to the issue of unelected politicians, but I've always been opposed to the House of Lords. I don't, I don't believe it should exist, so I don't have any problem agreeing with you about that. Um, but elected politicians, um, uh, I, again, we will have to agree to disagree. I mean, I can see the case that's been put forward... But that, but that ha- that happens already. I mean, there, they there's, just a, did. there's there's tons of there's tons of legal regulation for the media. That's why that's why I, that's why I have a practice. That's why I have a career. Um, and claimants are very successful in bringing claims where their privacy has been invaded and so on and so forth. Um, but I I just I think that um, uh, there is a vast amount of. Uh, political capital stored up on both sides of this argument, and I think we're seeing it. I mean, I think we're seeing it come out tonight, to some extent.
2: Okay, George. Evan, I, I did not say that it should be left only to law enforcement. My point was about using law as an incentive to effective regulation. I don't want policemen in the newsroom any more than you or anyone else does. Um, To the gentleman who asked about the role of universities in the construction of journalism, I will only just tell you the short uh, moment when uh, four academics, of whom Steve Bonnet was one, uh, spent a morning giving evidence to Lord Leveson, and I think there were another set of academics doing it in the afternoon. He was, so to speak, taking a day off at the time from the celebrities he was mostly hearing evidence from and uh, it's jolly nice of him to pay attention to, as I must say, but he established with the briskness that only a lawyer trained at the criminal bar can do that uh, the ethics teaching in our universities wasn't terribly relevant to the people he was really inquiring into. So as far as the Leveson and ethics issues goes, I'm not sure that I would be able to make a very strong argument that universities have much of a role in the construction
0: of new journalism. Okay. And, or, do you have a comment?
1: Um, look... Uh, in all fields I think uh, professional formation including professional ethics is important but we shouldn't exaggerate how effective it is. Uh, you need to have adequate structures and incentives and what we're talking about is power not professionals and uh, some people worry a great deal and rightly about the power of states particularly uh, um, uh, malign and undemocratic states and that's a classic worry I worry that we're sitting in a world where people fail to think much about other concentrations of power and we're talking about a a media world in which there are very considerable concentrations of power and we're also talking about regulation you see even uh, those who are opposed to the Leveson approach are talking about regulation They just talk about self-regulation. Time was in this country, all our professions were self-regulating. They've all hit a cropper in one way or another. Nobody goes for saying, oh, well, let the doctors regulate themselves now. Nobody says, let the academics regulate themselves. The media have been, and in my view, entirely rightly, vociferous about the weakness of self-regulation, which is very simple. It becomes self-interested regulation. Why is the message any different for the media themselves?
0: I'm afraid we've only got two or three minutes left, so if we could have a quick question from you, and if it's quick enough, we'll have time to bring in the gentleman with a hat. I'm afraid that will
3: be it. You you go first.
8: Hi, my name is Andrea. I'm from Occupy London. That's why I'm filming. Um, I, I just want to say that I'm now in a situation I spend a lot of time you know seeing independent journalists and activist media stuff and um, I'm now in a situation where I feel that you know it's almost impossible to talk about ethics when actually some of the media is controlled by you know whoever's got the most money so that you know ultimately it well I mean it is a bit like that you've just kind of to me you've, you've you you where is it Nora Sorry, whatever your name I'm sorry, Baroness O'Neill. I I feel that you've just inferred that, that actually in the end we're now in a situation where um, that is the message that people are going to be getting. And it was actually a miracle to me that we got all the stuff about Ed Snowden, thank God for Julian Assange and all the rest of them, otherwise there's so much stuff that we'd never have known about. Uh, I think that in talking
1: about ethics, one is not talking about things being good one is talking about the standards that might be relevant to them being better. Uh, So, uh, you you know, it's simply, uh, when things are bad, when you think there is corruption here or there that's when you need to talk about ethics, because you're not making a sort of public opinion poll judgment that these people are ethical. You're talking about what ought to be be the case, how it could be made better. These are normative questions, in short. We've got time for you. One last question.
6: Hi, John Devo from IPC Media. I actually have a question, so I'll be brief. Um, I just wanted to know if you guys wanted to... Basically, when you're looking at ethics isn't the issue of not regulating the media because the media write about what people want to know about you need to regulate people's thoughts and that's something I don't even know if I'm comfortable with people want to read about scandals so how do you regulate the people
1: well that's I think that's a lovely radical thought I really do and One of the things that we probably all better confess to one another is that we sometimes read tittle-tattle gossip and what we know pretty well are false allegations about people. And probably we should be more pure-minded and not do it, but that is what we do. Me personally, I would quite like to know if I'm reading a scandal about... A footballer and his former girlfriend who paid whom to carry the story I would quite like just a little bit more transparency from the media a little bit fin- more financial disclosure so if people want to read about the celebs they should perhaps know which stories the celebs and their agents paid for and which stories on the contrary the payment went the other direction it sort of helps one to judge things thank you for the question
0: and I think, any final comment from George or
1: Well,
2: I, I was just going to uh, address these questions. I mean, the, the question of concentration has already been dealt with, so I won't, so won't labour it. But on your broad question about the media ending up in the hands of the people with most money, if the independence of the media rests on their decoupling from the state, they will need to be somehow economically self-sufficient. There is a massive amount of disruption in news media going on, and the people who are reinventing it are, wait for it, capitalists with lots of money, nowadays mostly made in high tech. Thank you. Last comment
4: for Nobody me. has yet told me how this is going to regulate the internet
1: simply haven't heard it or the global media again one can only say we can't deal with with everything I do note one politician an MP who says very regularly cyberspace is public space and I think what she means by that is that the standards that we think are uh, appropriate for regulating things that are not in cyberspace are the standards that are appropriate in cyberspace as well how one does it is a question
0: Well, I think this debate could go on for a few hours yet. We do have some small drinks on the eighth floor. If you want to continue the debate and meet the speakers, you're welcome to come. But otherwise, let's thank the speakers for a very interesting debate.